Hi, everyone. Unfortunately, we must once again begin our show with an eulogy and an in memoriam for beloved member of the voice acting community of the anime industry and community that has passed away recently. Voice actor Grant James passed away on November 23rd at the age of 87. He was a long-time actor. He was a teacher of acting. He was involved in film, TV stage, audiobooks. He was recognized because of his acting classes as, uh, alongside his wife, as the godfather, godmother of acting in Dallas. So he was a beloved mentor figure for the Dallas acting community and scene. And you've heard his voice in many anime dubs, particularly Funimation, Texas-based dubs. The role that you know, I remember him best for is definitely Zeph in One Piece and Funimation stuff of One Piece, and he was really great in that role. That episode exploring Sanji Zeph's backstory and his just a performance as that character in the show in that arc in general was really, really strong, and I really enjoyed it. And in general, he did a lot of really strong performances, even in just minor roles in other shows that really stood out, whether it was Scar's Master, an FMA, or even Goku's Doctor when he was hospitalized after the Zion arc in DBZ. He was a performer that really brought a lot to all his roles, and I'm gonna miss hearing him. I'm gonna miss hearing him as Seth in One Piece in particular. And so I just want to spend some time paying my respects to such a prolific, long-time voice actor. An actor that really made an impact in the texting dubbing scene and community. I want to pay our respects and dedicate a moment of Silas in honor of his memories. And our thoughts, hearts, and wishes uh, all go out to his family and friends and all the people that he has touched. This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 221. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lom Ramayasha. And today we are going to be closing out the year by bringing in the new series that have come out recently on Shonen Jump, Manga Plus, and Oski. We don't know how they say, you know, we're done with the year, but the year isn't done with us because there's still new things to surprise us even as the year winds down. Early Christmas gifts for us in terms of new series to talk about. Some of these gifts uh, might be lumps of coal. <laughs> but others are genuinely delightful presents and wonderful surprises. So we're going to have fun talking about them today. 
Yeah, there's definitely uh, one thing we're going to talk about here that I really wish we had the receipt for, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to that. <laughs> yeah. Boy. So, yeah, I can't wait to talk about some of these new Simul pubs because, uh, ooh, I'm definitely excited to talk about some of these. Um, but you know what? Like Lum said, I think this pretty much is probably going to be the last episode of the year. And because of that, I think it made sense to both of us to cover the yearly Oricon list. That's right. Uh, the top 10 best-selling manga of the year are now out, and uh, we're going to talk about it. Lum, if you're okay with me going over the list. Yeah, let's run it down. What the highest-selling manga of the year of 2022 were. All right, so obviously we're going to go from 10 to number one. At number 10 on this list is Kaiju number eight, selling over 3 million copies over the year. Kaiju number eight obviously uh, has gotten so much traction ever since it debuted on Jump Plus. And obviously, you know, with its impending anime coming up, I'm sure a lot of people are excited and are probably checking out the series because of it. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. Mm-hmm. Next up on the list, we have Do Not Say Mystery, once again, uh, selling a little over 3 million copies. Do Not Say Mystery, we talked about this in the sort of uh, halfway through the year Oricon list a few months back. Obviously, it's doing very well, probably because of the drama that aired this year. But also, I've heard very good things about the series. And hey, you know, since the last time we talked about Do Not Say Mystery, we I think we mentioned this already, but this has been picked up by 7Cs. So uh, you can buy the first volume of this next year. Yeah, it's really great to see a Jose series represented as one of the highest selling manga of the year. I'm really glad the drama gave this series a boost. It's been running for a while, but you know, it's great to see it get more visibility. I'm really excited to read it. I'm really glad we're getting another work of Yumi Tamura's in English after such a long time. And yeah, I'm very, very excited to really investigate Do Not See Mystery next year. Uh, next up on the list, we have Chainsaw Man coming in at nearly 3.5 million copies sold throughout the year. Obviously, this was a big year for Chainsaw Man as uh, the anime just premiered uh, a couple months ago at this point. And I would not be surprised if over the next year it sells even more because of it. Yeah, you know, we'll get into comparisons with last year in a second, but even though you would think this would be an even bigger year for Chainsaw Man, it wasn't compared to last year. It actually has less sales than last year. However, I do think that as we get into 2023 with the anime still airing and new volumes, more new volumes of Chainsaw Man coming out, thanks to the ongoing part two, we will see another uptick in 2023. And I could see Chainsaw Man really explode in sales as popularity of the series continues to explode thanks to the anime and the ongoing arc of the manga. So yeah, I mean, a really good performance from Chainsaw Man. Again, I think that it can reach even greater heights potentially uh, in the coming year i could easily see chainsaw man the next time we cover this list in particular uh, I, I could see it easily being in the top five uh if it sells well enough oh absolutely i think top five is a definite possibility Next up, we have a new entry on the list this year with Blue Lock coming in at 3.5 million copies sold. And Blue Lock, I know this was a series that was highly anticipated, a lot of people getting into it once again, uh, probably because of the new anime. And, and also it's tie-in to like the World Cup, which is pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, <laughs> that definitely helps it a lot is that, you know, the World Cup is going on, so... 
big push for for the series. A lot of soccer enthusiasm right now. A lot of enthusiasm for the Japan team right now. And it's, you know, like, yeah. It's a really good timing for the anime to come out around the same time as the World Cup. And yeah, I'm sure the series in general has tied in itself to that. So yeah, I think that it was a lock for this list. I'm glad fans don't need to feel uh, blue that it's missing out. And I'm definitely keen to check it out as well. Again, it's it's really great to see a strongly performing sports title on the top of the sales charts. We've had Haikyuu with us for a couple years, but obviously Haikyuu is uh, over now. So it's good to see Blue Lock is kind of uh, stepping into its shoes. It's taking the ball onto another court. It's taking it out of people's hands and um, kicking it around, but it's keeping it going towards the goal. All the same. I was going to say, I, I feel like it's been scoring a lot of goals lately. Yeah, it definitely has scored a, a lot this year, <laughs> clearly. Next up on the list, we have another pretty frequent title with Kingdom selling at 3.8 million copies. And yeah, Kingdom, again, uh, just, just a series we always see on this list. Still waiting for one day, hopefully for this to get picked up in English in some capacity. Yep, uh, Kingdom is king. It continues to dominate the sales charts. And of course, it is a crying shame that we do not have it in English. Oh, the key to the kingdom we need to get that published but alas eventually maybe but it is right now a wealth of riches that is out of our reach yeah no kidding next up another frequent title on this list with my hero academia selling nearly 5.5 million copies and yeah my hero academia not much to say there obviously comparing this to last year's list it's sold a little less but still it's in the same spot you know it's yeah. number five last year number five this year but yes it has sold like 1.7 million copies left. i mean that's going to be a trend we'll talk about at the end of this is that uh a lot less sales across titles this year but you know my hero academia has still continued Continued the momentum it has had of its final arc and of course we have the latest season airing right now i could see another uptick especially as we get to the end of the series next year so i could expect a, a even bigger turnout for mha a bigger sales happening for it in 2023 but overall i think it has just stayed the course you know yeah i was gonna say earlier that um it feels like every time we cover this list at least for like the past few few years, My Hero Academia has been consistently like number five on this list. Like it always kind of stays in the same place. It, it feels like it hasn't really like gotten a like a huge uptick in sales in a while. Like it's, they've kind of like plateaued a little bit. Mm -hmm. At least that's from what I could tell anyway. Yeah. Next up on the list, another frequent title with One Piece selling a little over 10 million copies. And you know, One Piece has been really interesting to kind of keep up with because it used to be like, and I mean, it still is obviously, but like... One Piece used to dominate the charts. It used to be the top. You know, it always used to be number one. Always. But now One Piece's time has passed. It's no longer its period. There are other contenders for the crown. 
And not only that, I mean, it's not really even a placing silver or bronze here in fourth place. And that was true of it uh, last year. I mean, it's improved its performance from last year. However, that's one thing we will say in terms of both the number of sales and its placement on this list. But comparatively, they're just other series that have the attention and enthusiasm of manga readers in Japan right now. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of interesting to think about because like, obviously, sales for One Piece are a little better than they were last year. But I kind of thought and maybe we'll see this kind of trickle into next year's list. But like, I kind of thought with the success of Film Red that we would see like a strong world level of like uptick in sales for the manga. But so far, it doesn't seem like that's happened. Yeah, I mean, Strong World was a phenomenon that also, yeah, you know, we had that circumstances of Film Red and Final Arc that you would think would lead to a big Strong World-esque push. And yeah, we did not get that, but... We can maybe see it next year. We could see it next year. I think that the combination of the film and the final arc starting is going to draw more people back to One Piece. So I could definitely see you know, another big resurgence of One Piece coming. But it did not quite happen this year, timing-wise. You know, maybe because both the final arc and the film run came out towards the end of the summer. Maybe it just needs a little more time for the momentum to build up. But regardless, it was a good year for One Piece in general in terms of the sales numbers. Like, these are the highest sales that One Piece has had in a few years now going back. So that's pretty good. Even though it's not number one, it is still selling more than ever. So that's quite impressive for it. No, for sure. And then next up, a returning title from the list with Spy Family coming in at a little over 10.5 million copies sold over the year. Spy Family, you know, obviously it's doing very, very well because of the success of its anime this year. And I'm just I'm really happy to see it do well. Yeah, Spy Family, a huge, huge bump from the anime, pretty much doubling its sales from the previous year. Oh, yeah. This is a very, very strong year. I mean, you know, not only has Spy Family dominated the sales here in North America, it clearly has dominated sales over Japan. And yeah, I think that strength, momentum will continue. So yeah, I'm glad to see Spy Family really have its day. Mm-hmm. Next up, another returning title to the list with Tokyo Revengers coming in at a little over 11 million copies sold. Yeah, Tokyo Revengers, it's up a spot from last year, mainly because Demon Slayer did not rank in the top 10 this year, though it did rank at number 11, but just not enough for the top 10. But yeah, Tokyo Revengers got a bump up to silver uh, in second place this year in sales, though in terms of overall sales, it's down more by half compared to last year. Last year... So like 24 million this year, it's 11 million. Still, obviously, Tokyo Revengers still riding high from the big bump that it got thanks to the anime last year and because it was in its final arc. Now we'll see how the reception to the ending will affect things going forward in terms <laughs> yeah. of sales next year. But it has ended its run riding high on a really, really strong note, not too far behind from number one even. So it was a really, really strong performer in sales this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to be really interested in seeing where Tokyo Revengers is next year, because how I see things going is it'll probably place in the top 10 next year, but I can't imagine it'll stay on the list that much longer afterwards, is how I see things going anyway. 
Because, I mean, you know, we've we've seen other series on here rank pretty highly, despite, like, how some people felt about its ending. Like, I feel like The Promised Neverland is a pretty good example, even though I know some people... Uh, I don't know if most people, at least some people didn't like the ending for The Promised Neverland, uh, but it still seemed like it was doing pretty well, though. Yeah. But, yeah, we might as well talk about number one, because it really hasn't changed, with Jujutsu Kaisen, uh, with a little over 12 million copies sold. And, yeah, Jujutsu Kaisen continues to do well. Pretty pretty cool to see it do well, even despite the fact that, uh, yeah, I don't think, I guess besides the movie this year, yeah, there wasn't really a whole lot of anime out. No, I mean, it was just the movie which came out at the end of last year, but still was in theaters for like the first half of this year over in Japan. And yeah, it's still a peculiar ride out from the movie and just the momentum the manga itself has been having. I mean, we'll talk about the volume list in a little bit, but, you know, volume sales, individual volume sales are very high for Jujutsu Kaisen, you know, so there's still a lot of sustained enthusiasm for what's going on currently in the series, in the culling arc. So, yeah, I mean, Jujutsu Kaisen had a very, very strong year and definitely a wordy number one choice um, in terms of like riding on that success. Now, of course, if we're comparing to last year, these sales are less than half of what it did in 2021. In 2021, it did nearly 31 million. Here, it's done 12.2 million. But that uh, seems to be a trend across the board here is that sales are lower in the top 10, probably lower just in general for manga in 2022 as compared to 2021 where we still had the highs of Jujutsu Kaisen, Demon Slayer, and Tokyo Revengers enthusiasm going which were all series that sold over 20 million copies last year. Here we don't have a single series that has sold more than 20 million copies so the average in this top 10 has gone down quite precipitously uh, quite significantly and that that is true for a lot of these series, you know, just did not do as much this year, just overall compared to last year. However, you know, we do have some exceptions, namely One Piece and Spy Family that did see much stronger sales than they did last year when they were also still in the top 10. So, uh, you know, there's some series that had even stronger showings this year some series that had much lesser showings overall though i'm, I'm kind of just interested in seeing in general how sales overall this year compare to last year in terms of like how many cumulative volumes of all manga were sold how, like what the state of the industry is compared to last year because obviously we've been writing kind of the highs of big surges during the pandemic in 2020 2021 now it seems that is cooling and we're kind of going back to to more pre-pandemic figures and levels. So I guess we're going to see things maybe normalize or stabilize and we will maybe see those kind of like really interesting but unusual highs in terms of sales figures that we had been seeing in the previous two years. Mm, that is actually a really good point. I didn't even think about that, honestly. Well, I mean, it's not every year that, you know, a series can sell 80 million copies. No, so. yeah, we, we, we've, been, we've been getting too used to massive Titanic sales, and now we're just kind of going to normal successful sales. Yeah, again, this is kind of the figures we'd expect, like, pre-2020. Yeah, but uh, I am interested in seeing if, like, 
any of the top five will really change at all. Because I am genuinely wondering, like, how long Jujutsu Kaisen will stay number one. Yeah, we'll see if there's another series that will claim the gold next year or Jujutsu Kaisen with the second season of the anime coming out for next year will continue to cling to it or continue to hold it. Yeah, it'll probably stay number one, honestly. I could see that happening. I mean, you never know. There could be another big breakout series next year. There could be bumps for series that we uh, are underestimating. I mean, we don't really know how it'll turn out. I mean, I think there were some surprises that always, you know, catch us off guard. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see what will go down next year. But I do think that most of these titles will see stick around in the top 10. I, I think so, too. But I think you had some thoughts on the uh, top-selling manga by volume, if you want to go over those. Yeah. So we mentioned that Jujutsu Kaisen, of course, is number one here. And I just think it's interesting looking at the volume list and observing, like, what were the highest-selling individual volumes for manga series this year. Now, when we look at this list and we just have a sample size of the top 30 as provided by Oricon through ANN, when we look here, we see that Jujutsu Kaisen, its newest volumes, all did really, really strongly. But in particular, you know, the highest selling title of last year, the highest selling single manga volume, was its 18th volume at 2.1 million sales. Just this one volume sold that many. I also find it very interesting, though, that One Piece's, like, latest volumes last year all basically sold about 2 million as well. And what that kind of tells me is that, well, One Piece's newest volumes, they sell, like, really, really well. If we count the four One Piece volumes that are on this list, like, this would basically make up, like, 7.5 million copies, a million in sales, and it's like, oh, well, then that's like pretty much like three-fourths of the One Piece volume sold last year. So it's really the new volumes that are driving uh, One Piece sales. And with Jujutsu Kaisen, when we're looking at this top 30, like we see that the new volumes are doing well, but what really must have pushed it to the top and has definitely got to be just a really strong and consistently evenly strong showing in its backlist sales and the sales of of just the entire catalog of the series as a whole that helped it be number one. And I just thought that was like an interesting little detail to observe. Another thing that was interesting when you just look at this top 30 is that Spy Family definitely all its volumes proliferate basically inside the top 30. And that kind of goes to show like, yeah, again, really consistently strong sales like across every volume of the series with a peak with volume 10, its latest volume at 1.3 million. And I just found, well, no, the, the peak is Spy Family Volume 9 at 1.8 million rather. And that came at like number 6 in the overall ranking. So yeah, I just thought that but it's interesting that Spy Family, like how we've been seeing Spy Family in the book scan list, like every volume pretty much ranking. That's what's happening here in the Oricon top 30 volumes. Like pretty much every Spy Family is pretty much a third because every volume, all the 10 volumes are in here. And I just thought it was amusing. 
Can't get enough of that family. No, uh, people love that family. People love families. That's where we're getting you more <laughs> manga about families, aren't we? Well, yeah, so I just thought it was interesting to look at this and see like, oh, well, uh, here's how sales are kind of breaking down between different series. Like what is driving certain sales successes? And, and definitely there are cases like One Piece where it's like, oh, the newest volumes are like the real drivers of the sales. But then you have series like JJK K and Spy Family, Riff Avengers to some extent, and then yeah, like MAJ, where they have pretty strong sellers in terms of like their newest volumes, but it's really a consistently strong selling backlist. Just consistently strong sales across the the entire volume count of the series that are sustaining and uh, allowing them to rank so high in the sales charts this year. So just wanted to make kind of those observations. Mm-hmm. One real quick thing I want to point out is Hunter Hunter 37 selling at just a little over uh, 700,000 there, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, just creaking in to the top 30. So yeah, I mean, again, Hunter Hunter uh, in terms of individual volume sales, uh, very, very strong as well, always. Um, but yeah, I think that's about it for the list. I mean, it's always really cool to see what series have sold in Japan throughout the year. And I'm really interested in seeing whether this list will be shooken up again next year or for things will stay mostly the same. I think we're going to see a period of stabilization barring like any like major unexpected development or major shakeup or blow up in terms of a, a series of popularity. But yeah, it's really going to be interesting to see what the new normal will be and then what new series will rise through the ranks and what might drop, drop off. Mm hmm. But I guess until the next time we uh, cover these lists, I think it's time to get into our simulpubs. Indeed, we shall. Again, we have about a half a dozen new series to talk about. And the majority of those are the latest batch of Shonen Jump series. We had a round of four new titles to talk about. However, we also had new titles off of Asuki and Manga Plus, and we're going to start with those. We're going to start with Asuki's newest title, a title that is exclusive to them, that will become a simul pub, though as of right now, you know, they're going to slowly be working their way through the backlog of the series. This is a series that started a couple years ago in 2020, so it'll take them a little bit to catch up, but they have the first three chapters available for us to cover today, and this series is Natsume and Natsume by Shinsuke Serato. Shinsuke Serato is best known for The Girl with the Sampaku Eyes, which is published by Dempa. This is a very similar type of premise or kind of like central character concept in terms of like a very mean face looking character who is kind of judged as kind of being like standoffish or sinister or just angry by people around them because they have kind of like a mean face. In the case of our main character Natsume in this series like he has kind of like a snaky sleazy like face so people like think that he is like acting like sinister or creepy and are kind of weirded out by him. 
But he is a good boy. He has a very kind heart. And he really wants to be a hero. Because he looks up to his childhood friend. Also named Natsume. Natsume Mizuki. And his childhood friend always came to his aid. And helped him out as a kid. And she in general is a person who keeps a very cool head and demeanor. Is really kind and looks out for others. And he admires that about her and he wants to become a hero like her and she wants to be her hero and so he really is trying to find ways in order to like kind of help people just earnestly and sincerely and takes a lot of pride with that he tries to find ways to kind of better himself like making his own lunches like Natsume does and tries to help people even if that means like putting himself in danger or doing things that he's scared of and basically kind of the big conflict or the big event that happens within these first three chapters is that Natsume responds to a kid who needs help rescuing his kitty who is like stuck up in a tree so he climbs up the tree to help take the cat and console it but the cat is a little bit scared of it but also like the tree starts to like kind of crack like the branch he like cracks under him so he miraculously uh kind of like a cat lands on his feet uh rescuing the cat safe and sound but you know Natsume Minazuki uh she's upset because what he did was dangerous and he made her worry and he realizes oh man that wasn't cool of me like making people worry isn't heroic at all and he's like a little frustrated instead of that and yeah it's kind of a a learning thing but it, it ends on a really nice note of like the kid later is talking with his friends like oh like my cat was rescued by a hero like and his friend was like well wasn't he like a, a bad guy no he was like no he wasn't the bad guy he was the actual hero and so that's a sweet thing and it, it seems like the series is just gonna be kind of a series of sweet little stories as Natsume tries to live up to the example of the other Natsume to become like a capable cool person like her and become a hero to other people and to her and yeah I think it's a uh, very very charming yeah this I think I really like this I am a sucker for like I'm a sucker for for characters who, like, people think are, like, evil-looking, mm-hmm. thuggish, uh, delinquent-ish, you know, and they're totally not. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a sucker for characters with resting delinquent faces, I'll call it. Yeah, or resting bitch faces, <laughs> Evan and Ed Chavez would call it. But, yeah, no, he is such a good boy. Not to make sure anyway. Like, he, like, greets, our introduction to him is, like, greeting the sparrows with a good morning and then he's like worried in class or he's upset in class because his grandma's like mochi got moldy and he he was like worrying about that so the other Natsume like kind of noticed that and like we'll go visit her together and we'll make more for us to eat together and so he's just like a sweet innocent boy who worries about the kind of innocent things and you know he's like oh I've got to do my best to help people hey I'll, I'll pick up this eraser for my classmate and yay, uh, she was happy about that. Or I'm gonna like make my own lunch, just like Natsume, even though it's like all just <laughs> salt onigiris and doesn't have any like other side toppings or whatever. So he's a very likable character. 
and uh, you want to like kind of uh, and see him help other people and see him like be understood in his intentions and that's what is like this really satisfying heartwarming thing is that at the end of the story where he like helps rescue the cat the kid is like oh no that guy was a hero and he's like defending him is like hey no don't think of him he wasn't a bad guy at all he was a hero he was cool and i thought that was very sweet and uh, i would like to see more people start to like fall for him and see like oh man that guy is cool he is heroic and obviously the big driving thing in the series is going to be natsume uh, the other natsume minizuki to think that of him too and i'd like to see that and I also just really like the fact that this is a series where the protagonist, who is kind of this more like kind of macho masculine dude, he admires and looks up to like this very kind feminine woman. And I think that's a really nice message and sweet thing too uh, about the series is like, oh, like he thinks that she and just her kindness and just like her confidence and her empathy and looking out for others, that is like the coolest thing. And that is what he wants to live up to. And I think that is, is really, really sweet. Yeah, that last moment of chapter three, where the kids are all like, no, he was a hero and all that. Uh, yeah, that melted my heart. Uh, mm. And that was really nice to read. I do really like how, like, even though he's got that resting bitch face going on, that, you know, th there are still people that still feel okay, like, interacting with him, and they're not, like, totally weirded out by him. Yeah, he has a friend who, like, kind of jokes with him about, like, his mean face, but, like, you know, it's still friendly towards him it's not like totally ribbing him about it totally being a jerk about it like he's saying hey you know he's just bantering being supportive and then like when he does pick up the race for the other girl in the class like she does genuinely thank him with a smile and so you know he does get through to people and people do see his good intentions and his, he is understood and i appreciate that it's not a complete uphill battle for him to be understood as like a good person but it's still a little challenging because there are people who like judge him based on appearance yeah i don't know if i would have been able to take it if the series were like that if it were just like him all the time trying to convince people that he's actually a good boy and people should like him you know I don't know if my anxiety could take it. And they always, like, misunderstand. That would be very sad. It could be funny, but also sad. I much more appreciate the balance of, like, how they find, like, really heartwarming kind of moments in, like, him being understood even this early on, but still maintaining a level where, yeah, like, in general, though, there's people who are like, uh, is that guy scheming something? Like, he's got this, like, creepy grin and stuff, so, yeah. Yeah, they can have jokes like that, but then, you know, not deny him his victories and his moments of meaningful connection. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, overall, I don't know. I wasn't expecting to like this series that much because I, I didn't really have any, like, expectations going in. But yeah, so far, I think it's really genuinely, like, sweet and charming, and I might actually try to keep up with this. I actually, like, really do want to read more of this at some point. Yeah, I think it's a very charming series, and I definitely am keen to continue it. I do think it's interesting that Onosuke, they're splitting 
chapters into two parts starting with the third chapter and it seems like in the post schedule one half of the chapter is gonna come out on Fridays and the other half on Sundays uh, essentially and I'm Hmm. curious as to why that is whether that's just how it was published originally or they're doing that for the sake of just what they're able to do localization wise but it's an interesting choice but you know these chapters aren't very long just as a whole so it's also a very breezy read i would say so it's a very just nice enjoyable series to just pop in and read and check back in in a couple days and another week to see the story continue. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm just glad that Ozki is nothing like manga up and they're not like charging us for like every half chapter. That would that would actually annoy me. No, it's not a pay to unlock chapter model. It's at it's least, you know, that would be more egregious where it's like, oh, we split into chapters and you have to unlock every single part of this chapter. But no, you know, it's all part of the same subscription. It's just that the releases the chapters been split apart and the releases seem to be staggered out a bit yeah i i'm just me personally i'm not like a huge fan of like splitting chapters up because it's like i want i want the whole chapter now but i mean if it's like a contractual thing or if it like works for them in terms of like maybe having a buffer to like let the people who are like working on localizing this like give them more time to like get more chapters out maybe i don't know if it helps them and they're not charging me extra for it i'm fine with it that's basically where i'm at but yeah, I'd, I'd give this a solid recommend if you if you want something like cute and legitimately like really charming and sweet, like a real feel good comic, I think. Absolutely. Um, but I think uh, with that out of the way, we should go to the one manga plus title we have to talk about. Yeah, this was a, a hard fit in terms of like where to place this in our discussion order because it's like, do we want to end with this because it technically it's like the most it's not the most recent thing, but yeah, I don't know. It's like a hard one to talk about because it's going to be like the biggest like <laughs> negative swerve we're going to have in this discussion. I like I like doing it this way because I I like the idea of like ha- having like a I don't know what you would call it a not a compliment sandwich, but something along those lines where it's like we'll start we'll start with something we like, start with the thing we don't like, put it in the middle. And then we'll get to stuff that we actually like afterwards. Like, I I would have been kind of bummed out if we saved this for, like, the end of the show, honestly. Yeah, that's the thing. I didn't want to end with this because, man, it would be ending our discussion with such negativity. That would be a downer. And it's a downer to be negative about this because, ideally, we wouldn't be. We, at least I think, I would have really had just... pretty positive things to say about this series I because think so too, the yeah. underlying series is enjoyable the series that we're talking about is the new series on manga plus me and my gangster neighbor by momose wataru who you know as the author of romantic killer also now available on manga plus and shonen jump app and yeah this is their newest series that you know is about basically a kid who's like elementary school age he basically lives at home because his parents are really busy working and one day you know (laughs) just like 
his neighbor, his upstairs neighbor, kind of falls into his room through a hole in the ceiling. And uh, there just is like a hole in the ceiling between their rooms now. And his upstairs neighbor is like this very serious looking suited person called Aoi, who has a real interest in cute things. Like he, <laughs> when he drops down into Yui's apartment, he has bunny slippers and he has like a little bear apron and his on his jacket is like a cute little Koneko. So, you know, he kind of gets outed immediately as like a fan of cute things and a fan of Baskemon, <laughs> like a basically Pokemon parody anime. So he basically, uh, in us talking with each other, like, you know, always understands like Yui's situation that he's like a stay at home kid. And then Yui understands more about Oi and like his interest in cute things and how he kind of has had to keep that a secret from other people and not really able to share it with other people because you know, he grew up in an environment and household where liking cute things was considered unmasked unmanly and he was chastised by his father for being interested in those things and not really able to share them with the people around him either also out of fear of like well I can't I have to keep up an image of certain seriousness and masculinity and stuff and that just doesn't fit but with Yui he can just like uh, enjoy these things and in return like you know there's this big conflict about like oh we gotta fix the, the hole in the ceiling but like Aoi is like oh no don't you talk to the landlord I don't want them to be snooping around and all that stuff and so he kind of like interferes with Yui's attempts to make contact with the landlord and stuff like that but then eventually he comes to realize that the reason why Aoi kind of is dropping in on him and like really looking out for him is like he's just worried about him because he's living alone. And so he's like looking out to protect him because there's just been this incident of like just a creepy, dangerous people like <laughs> lurking around. So he was just uh, trying to protect him since he was staying home alone. And Basically, the two just form a nice friendship with each other of like, you know, understanding and looking out and supporting each other. And Yui says, hey, you know, we'll just keep the ceiling hole as it is. I was used to being alone, but you came and helped me. So would you like to like house shift me? And so now like he's going to be his friend and look out for him and look out for each other. And I think that's it's a, it's a sweet story. I enjoyed the, the core of it a lot, uh, well, at least, you know, what I could uh, understand of it, because, see, the thing <laughs> about the series is that even though the core story, the story underneath is very charming, the problem is that the localization is barely comprehensible. It's trash. Because it is, it is so straightforward... Uh, a direct to be flavorless. There is just no character voice to any of the dialogue. It is so stilted the way people talk, the way it is written. There is a lot of strange localization choices, like them not translating certain onomatopoeia or for like phrases. Like when Aoi drops down into Yui's room, he says something like "coo." Which is like something the localizer should have, uh, you know, translated to be like "ug" or "few" or, or whatever. It's like they just kind of left that kind of expression untranslated there. 
And then they, they're like utter like moments in which like there's letter ring that's like coming through a balloon. Oh yeah. In this panel where like Yui's like saying, oh, I'll tell the landlord the L is like crossing the word balloon of Aoi's speaking. So there are some moments like that. Uh, but overall, the main problem is just the translation is just so stilted and so awkward it's just really, really hard to understand what the characters are even talking about sometimes because it's... Sorry, I'll go even further. I think the entire package is bad. Like, the translation's bad and stilted. The lettering is really clunky in places. Like, the font choice even feels like something that, like, th this whole thing, fe I, I feel like I'm reading a scanlation. Like, this is not much better than how a normal scanlation would look, honestly. Yeah, I think I would agree. It doesn't seem there was a lot of thought in the font choice in terms of like matching the tone style of the series. Like it, there's an out of place quality to it that feels scanlation white. It doesn't feel natural to the art. Which really upsets me because, I mean, look, we've talked about it here and there how cheaply Shueisha wants to put these new Manga Plus series out. Like that's an open secret at this point. But like I genuinely never thought it could get like this bad. You know, the, the other series that we've covered over the past year weren't, like, amazing or great and could have been better, but we could still at least, like, they were at least, like, readable and we could no, understand what was going on. were all competent. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, there was very few series before this that I felt the translation was, like, that stilted or localization was, like, that bad as to really hamper my enjoyment of the comic. But this is a whole nutter level of... The translation choices, the localization choices, hurting comprehensibility, hurting enjoyability, because it is distracting and detracting from the storytelling and telling the story. And that is egregious and yeah. really a shame and a huge disservice to this comic that in its core, at its core, is something that I enjoyed. I would have enjoyed even more if I had been introduced to it and got into read it with a more natural and more well-integrated and thoughtful uh, translation. Yeah. And... I feel, I mean, I, we don't know the complete circumstances behind this, but it really does seem to be a case of Shueisha's cost-cutting efforts in terms of, like, putting out localizations fast at the cost of quality. Yeah. And if this is the standard that they find acceptable, that they are going to have in their future publications from here on out, I mean, we, I think, may as well stop covering new Manga Plus titles because... Because we'll have the same complaints. It'll be just hard to enjoy. Hard to talk about these series. without talking about how the localization interferes with that enjoyment. When it is so uh, poor. Because like I, I could talk about what's good about the series. I can talk about like you know what's good about the core of the story and relationships and art and stuff. But if I can't enjoy the series without the effort of like looking past localization. If the localization is like actively interfering with my ability to get invested into it, uh, I have so much less motivation to think about and to analyze and want to praise all these things. And certainly I don't think 
that, you know, we want to continue like promoting poor localizations of this quality, poor practices of this type. Yeah. When you're spotlighting and talking about these series. So, I mean, we're doing this one, but if this is the standard, again, that we notice in future titles, uh, if it's this poor, then we will have to stop or seriously reevaluate our coverage of these titles. Because, I mean, this is just not endorsable, not recommendable, no. Like, which is a shame because it could have been, it could have been recommendable. If it had a good localization, I definitely would have said, hey, this was really enjoyable. I'm looking forward to reading more, but I don't think I will be. I don't think I can uh, encourage you to support a localization like this and read it on Manga Plus like this. So that's a shame. Yeah, look, I mean, if Shueisha and Manga Plus aren't going to care about the quality of their stuff, then I don't know why we should be bothering even talking about their stuff or even, you know, telling people to go check out their app. Because if they care this little, I don't know why we should care, quite honestly. Exactly. Like, I'll be real with you, and I I told you this off mic, but I th- this was like a 62-page chapter. I didn't even get 20 pages in. Okay, see, I guess that's a big uh, barrier. Yeah, see, like, seriously. So you, wait, like, you didn't read it at all, so basically, uh, after the 20 pages. Yeah, it, it was about, like, page 18, where, like, I just had so much trouble trying to, like, stay invested, because, like... That's g- fair. G- like, genuinely, the localization of this in general just, like, took me out of it completely. I just couldn't get past it. Mm-hmm. See, yeah, I mean, that's fair. Like, again, if (laughs) the localization is interfering with your ability to enjoy a work that much, then, you know, why continue with it? That's why good localization matters is because it is a part of what keeps a reader invested. Like, the reader shouldn't have to feel like they are struggling to understand a series or feel like that they are reading something that feels robotic or awkward. It should just be natural, like how the character characters talk how things read it should feel natural and that takes thought to make that natural thought to communicate emotions and characterization there's just so much more to translating than simply swapping out words from one language to another there is a whole art to you know communication and to speech there's an emotion behind there that is needed and needs to be thought about and by translating things in this way it feels again we don't completely know the circumstances of how this was translated but it definitely feels like this was done without any real thought put into the meaning the message behind the words that are being spoken and it's just like just no let's just replace swap out these words and it, it's all in english right that's enough it's no it's not enough yeah let's be real they probably got paid shit wages I mean, very likely. That's true. So, I mean, if you, again, that's also why you need to pay your localization staff good wages so that they have incentive to do their best. And they have the time to do their best. They have the incentive to do their best because they feel that they are given work that has value and that they feel proud of. But like when you are compensating your localizer so poorly, you're saying, well, then why should I value the work I'm doing if this work in these dollar terms, you're saying, has so little value? And yeah, I mean, it's just a really terrible consequences of thinking about art in such cheap terms like that. Yeah, it's it's a real shame. Because at its core, I really wanted to like the series. I really wanted to give it a chance. And full disclosure, I had seen people online talk about the series 
you know, ahead of time before I gave it a read myself. So I sort of kind of knew what to expect going in as far as quality, but like, I genuinely didn't think it was going to be this unreadable. Like, I haven't had an experience like this on Manga Plus since since we covered, um, excuse me, Dentist. And I thought, it, yeah, well, this is so much, I mean, Th- this I thought is much worse. Dentist is perfectly fine. I mean, yeah. I can understand there's some still, I get to understand a feeling of some stiltedness, but overall, excuse me, Dentist was still a genuinely funny series. Like, at least there is thought put into making the humor land there. And here, like, the humor completely falls flat because of just how directly and without thought they are translated and it's just again just a a whole other level of poor localization quality that we have seen from manga plus no i i I agree like this is much worse but yeah i'm i'm just saying that as, as many issues as i had personally with the way excuse me dentist was handled in places like yeah this is much worse like at least i could make it through more than one chapter of excuse me dentist i couldn't even make it 20 pages here honestly it, it was just that bad, and unfortunately, because of that, I don't have any interest in reading any more of this, and depending on what the localization quality is going to look like for the rest of their series from here on in, I'm not going to have any interest in reading those either. So I do have interest in reading more of this, I just want to read it with a good translation, because again... That's what I mean, yeah. When I look past the local... Uh, the core of this series is really good. The art is really good, the central characters and the relationship is really sweet. I really like the message of this, you know, adult man, the, she hasn't dropped to the fact that he's like Yakuza against her at this point. Like, Yui just thinks that, oh, he's like a super serious salaryman type. But, like, I like this idea that this guy who has to live this kind of, you know, very serious masculine image and is hiding his enjoyment of cute and childish things since his childhood, basically, now has, like, a friend that he can confide and enjoy these things with. And Yui, as a kid, like, as someone, you know, as, who's been in independent and thought he was fine being alone for so long he realizes hey i i like having someone around i like having a friend i like having someone to look out for me and i I really like that connection that these characters form i really think it's a really strong central relationship I, i i want to read more of this series and see how these characters develop and their friendship Rose and see where how the series is going to explore more of these scenes, particularly in regards to ideas of masculinity as explored through Aoi's character. Like, what does it mean as someone who likes you things so much, but also has to, you know, keep up this image of this serious Yakuza businessman type? And the art is really strong here. Like, it's a strong series, but the localization is just completely robbing it of the power it could have of the appeal it should have like I could understand the core of it but I wish I could have enjoyed it so much more and I didn't and that is just such a shame because I should have I really should have and so what I'm hoping is that this series is successful enough that it gets picked up and localized by a publisher who will give it a translation of care a translation that has thought and emotion put behind it uh, that can read naturally and allows the strength and the words and messages of the original work to fully come out and be appreciated. 
Because right now, the current localization and translation is stifling that. And stifling that for a series that is enjoyable and should be more enjoyable and recommendable. And I think that is just such a travesty. So I want to read more of this. I'm hoping that, you know, in the future, I will be able to do so without caveats and with the translation helping my enjoyment of it rather than interfering with it. Well, let's just hope that if Romantic Killer is doing well enough for Viz, that maybe they'll pick this up and they'll do their own localization of it. Because honestly, that's the only way I'm going to go back to this. That would be the power move is like if Viz is like, hey, you know, how would we take on the series now? I think that's a good way to like kind of fight back against Manga Plus. That would like, be nice. Th their efforts with this kind of thing here. Look, I think we can safely say that at the very least, we're going to be very picky and choosy about what we cover on Manga Plus from here on in, if their quality is going to vary this wildly, honestly. If the localization is unreadable, if it's of poor quality, we will not cover it. But yeah, we are going to have to wait and see like how things will be. Because again, next year is the start of their big initiative of like every new Jump Plus series is going to get localized and saddle pumped. So, yeah. You know, obviously that's a lot of series. Uh-huh. And mm -hmm. we'll see how they can sustain that and whether they can do that in a way that preserves uh, the quality of the localization of those series. So, I mean, if this is the foot they're starting with, uh, I have very poor expectations. I have big doubts for the future of how these localizations will go, but we'll see what the new year brings. I was going to say, like, if every new series that comes after this is about this quality or even worse, God forbid, like, there's a huge possibility that we will just stop talking about Manga Plus entirely on the show. That That is a genuine possibility. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, if we're not going to talk about these series, we won't really be acknowledging it at all, will we? Not, not really. I'd rather not, personally, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Manga Plus, if anyone from Manga Plus is listening somehow, please do better. You can do better. Shueisha, you are a you are a multi-million dollar company. You can afford good translations. We know that. Please do better. Absolutely. I mean, they can absolutely afford it. And they can clearly do better because they have done better with other vocalizations. Even if the behind the scenes could still do much better. But come on, pay people what they're worth and put care into the vocalization, into the quality of the work you're publishing. I'm begging you, please, please care about your comics. That's all we want. <sighs> but um, I think we should jump to our Shonen Jump stuff. Yep. So now we have the latest batch of new Shonen Jump series to talk about. Speaking of Jump Plus, though, speaking of things that ran on Jump Plus and Manga Plus, the first of these titles comes from a creator who really made it big late last year, early this year, with their title on Jump Plus Manga Plus, Takupi's Original Sin. Tizen 5 has made his uh, weekly Shonen Jump debut with uh, another story about sins, Ichinose Family's Deadly Sins. And and this series is basically about a family that all seem to have developed amnesia after a traffic accident during a Golden Week vacation. The series begins with the son of the family and our main character, Tsubasa, like waking up to the rest of his family kind of asking what he remembers. And he's like, uh, I don't really remember who I am. Who are you people? And they're like, 
like, oh man, we were hoping you'd remember because of course they've all lost their memories and are trying to like figure out like, okay, how can we get our memories back? There's some sort of like trauma that has to do with this accident or whatever. Basically, they have to, like, kind of figure out, since they can't remember anything, they have to, like, kind of try and get closer to each other and try to rekindle memories by, like, coming up with, like, false memories, imaginary experiences, like, remembering fake vacations to Okinawa, New York. And it's, uh, they somewhat have fun with most of the family, except for the sister, who is the most glum about their situation, Shiori. She is the most defeated of like, oh, will we ever get our memories back? What's the point of these imaginary experiences? I'm so worried. But like, you know, Sabasa kind of consoles and tells her that he remembers how much care that she showed to him when he was hospitalized, that she was calling out to him, like when he was at cold. And she comes back to reconnect with the family. And so they seem to enjoy reminiscing these imaginary experiences, kind of rebonding as a family. And you think things are going on a high note, that they're all optimistic, that yeah, they don't remember their full memories, but you know, they're a family, they believe in that, they believe in their solidarity, they're the strongest family, they all have each other. Uh, and then they return home, and their place is an utter mess, uh, a pigsty, and things are immediately weird. They're like, why is this place so, so messy at all these, like, food and books and papers, all this trash just thrown about? Everyone has their own individual room, a locked room with their own keys. Like, even the couples, the grandparents and the parents, they have their own rooms. And, you know, they go inside and we don't see in the insides of everyone's room, but uh, it's a horrifying, shocking sight. We know that they all see inside. We know that what Sabasa sees is that around his room, which is also horribly messy, is just graffiti everywhere. Where he apparently he has written hundreds of thousands of times die to himself. And then he has a photo of his family just where the face is all crossed out. So there's something going on with the family. And the family is all very perturbed and kind of avoiding the subject of what was in their rooms uh, and what's going on with them. And we still don't know the rest of the family's deal because the subsequent chapters have all dealt with Tsubasa and his school life. Namely his relationship with his friend slash bully Nakajima. Uh, basically, he goes to school and he immediately feels like alone because everyone is like kind of keeping their distance from him. But then like his supposed best friend Nakajima starts acting buddy-buddy with him and says, Hey, we're going to hold a welcome back party for you in the classroom. You better come. And so Sabasa starts to believe, Oh, I have this good friend. And I was really worried, but I'm really glad to have that. But, you know, then immediately the shoot <laughs> drops and like Nakajima <laughs> greets him with like a bucket full of food waste and trash that he pours on him and then the Mary's come falling back of like oh Nakajima and the entire school basically bullies Sabasa which is why he wrote die had all these like suicidal self-hating thoughts scribbled in his room because he literally is getting death threats from his classmates all the time they are bullying him by like throwing trash on him and beating him up just totally making his life living hell and eventually Sabasa can't take it and he lashes out at Nakajima and chastises him and says, you know, you pick on me so much, but you are the real pathetic one, you're the disgusting one, and he really calls him out publicly. 
And he feels really cathartic about that. He's like, okay, well, now that I stood up for myself, we can start over again the next day. But then the next day, the entire class has turned on Nakajima. Oof. And they kind of goad Sabasa on into like, hey, uh, you want to continue on to like bully him and stuff like that? And Sabasa kind of gives in to some dark impulses to do that. But then we peel back the curtain a little more and find out there's even more to Nakajima and Sabasa's relationship. It's not just that Nakajima was Sabasa bully. Like, Sabasa was Nakajima's friend when they were, like, in elementary school. He got Nakajima into the soccer team. He looked out and supported him, and they played the team together. But, you know, when it came time to junior high, even though Sabasa promised to be with Nakajima on the team, like, he left the team, apparently because of family problems and situations. And so Sabasa was left on his own, and he had to work hard because he wanted to make the team to fulfill the promise they made but like Sabasa then kind of chastised him and turned on him for like caring about that and saying that he always like kind of hated that earnestness of him and that seems to be kind of the tipping point that like soured their friendship and turned Nakajima into Sabasa's bully and then he started to bully Sabasa in the same way that he had always been bullied in elementary school and it's like these great swerves that we don't know how this is going to resolve but it seems that Sabasa has kind of like snapped out of his darker impulse to punish Nakajima and stops him from like throwing like trash all over his uniform because he remembers no that's that's important it's not true that it doesn't mean anything that our friendship didn't mean anything so I'm really going to be curious to see like where this how this is gonna resolve where that goes and the fact that this seems that it could be going to like a positive resolution already makes it seem way less like dark <laughs> than distressing than Takabe's original sin which is just a constant barrage of suffering until like the very end <laughs> at least here we have glimmers of, of bright spots of like oh things might be getting better now like but man Tyson 5 uh, is just a master <laughs> of like really skilled at least of like really setting you up for certain expectations and then just sweeping the rug right under you and just when you think you have the situation figured out they just pulls in another twist that completely recontextualizes how you thought of how things were re- really are and how things are gonna be and so uh it's really really interesting to read this series and see it develop because it is not really going how you expect like you think it's going in a positive direction then it takes a dark turn you think it's taking a dark turn then it takes a swerve into like, oh, maybe this is not what I thought. But maybe it also won't go as dark as I thought. Or it doesn't have to. So I, I'm really interested to see just how this situation will play out. Uh, I want to learn more about the mystery behind each of these family members. And there's clearly even more mysteries hidden. Because this series is called Ichinazi Family's Deadly Sins. There's six family members. But uh, at the dinner table in the final page of the first chapter, there's an empty chair. So is there a secret seventh member that could come up at some point well deadly sins seven deadly sins we'll see so there's, there's a lot of mysteries uh still left to be unexplored but already like this has just been a really uh fantastic kind of psychological trip and i'm interested in seeing where it's going uh, and of course like his art uh, is amazing just the things he does with like perspective the timing of his sequences is just phenomenal too uh his expressions like just so powerful and emotional and evocative so 
man, this is a, a really interesting series that's unlike anything that we've really seen in Jump in a long time. And uh, I'm very curious to see where it's going. Okay, first off, I'm looking at that last spread now. I didn't even notice that empty chair, so mm, I wonder if that's going to come into play. That's that's a good catch, actually. Yeah. And also, I know in the past when we've talked about new series, we've talked about like how unjump-like they were, but then like as as they go on, they kind of become more jump-like. This is very unshonen jump. This is not jump-like at all so far. I love everything about this series. <laughs> yeah, it really does not fit into a neat category of like slice of life, sports, action. This is like a psychological uh, drama. Yes. Uh, <laughs> unlike what we have come to expect. It's not even comparable to something like Death Note at all. Like Death Note, Promise Neverland, no, not at all. The next series we're going to talk about is more like those things, but this is like completely different territory uh yeah. in terms of like stakes in terms of like what's driving the conflict of the story because it's all about just unfurling this mystery of like what is going on with these people what's going on inside their heads and why they're in the situation that they're in and it just keeps peeling back layers and then just when you think you have some of the things figured out it's adding more complication thought that so it's really 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 interesting to see how the story is developing so far I really hate to give it away so soon, but I think I think this is my favorite out of this batch. It's just, it's so unlike anything in this batch and anything that I've read in Jump in a while. This is the kind of thing that would normally belong on Jump Plus. This yeah. is not the kind of thing I would expect from Shonen Jump. And I'm, I'm kind of genuinely, I am a little afraid that like, because it's so on Jump-like, I'm really afraid it's going to turn off like normal Jump readers. And I'm really afraid that like, it's going to get canned because of it, because maybe it's, you know, we have friends like, uh, like Maxi per se, who really just absolutely do not gel with this series at all and just don't even want to touch it. And I totally understand that. I really do. But it really makes me afraid of like whether people are actually going to take to this or not. But I, I guess that remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, Taizan had a big success with Takapi, but that's true that the Shonen Jump audience is different from the Jump Plus audience. It's used a little bit younger. And again, it's very much not a series that fits neatly into kind of established genres and story types that Jump is known for. So it could be a challenge for track readers, but perhaps the fact that it is such a unique and different thing that will help it out and attract interest to it, attract audiences outside of the normal jump readership. And I will be curious to see like if there's going to be a difference between like the people who are enjoying it in Shonen Jump and like the people who are picking up the volumes or rather, you know, maybe it's not as well received by the Shonen Jump readership, but it has a very strong fan base that supports it in sales. So we'll see how it turns out for the series. Right now, though, I am just very interested in following along the story and seeing how these mysteries with this family how their stories are going to unfurl mm, yeah i need to see this through to the end i feel like it's been a while since we've read a new jump series where i'm just like 100 all in i gotta read this to the end there's no way that i'm not gonna read more of this look i i love very dark and depressing stuff so th this kind of stuff is like so far up my alley i love really like challengingly depressing stuff like this it's so to my taste that, like, I can't not keep up with it. I have to know where this is going. I am genuinely afraid because, 
like you mentioned, we didn't see like what was in those what was in the other family members' rooms at all. I'm really genuinely afraid of like what's in their rooms, and I'm really kind of scared that we don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, I think what I appreciate about this series, though, is that while it is dark, it is not a series that's about suffering without hope. Like, you yeah. know, it does pull the out rug, like the characters are how moments, like, oh, everything's going to be okay. And then they immediately, like, things deflate when they, <laughs> when the situation isn't as they expect and uh, turns out to be much worse. Like, we're having this moment now between Sabasa and Nakajima where it's like, oh, you think that this could go in a dark direction? Maybe it still will. But we're having these moments where the character's like, well, no, we can still fight against, like, the situation that we're in that is causing us suffering. And I think that's ultimately where the destination of the series is, is that there's some thing going on with them that you know they had such unhappy lives and have to keep secrets from each other they had to keep distance from each other in their own home but this could be the start like them losing their memories some learning about their lives of their past and learning how to move forward this could be the start of them connecting each other and actually forging like a strong relationship with each other and improving their lives and I think that is what I'm really interested in seeing how that goes and how that develops. and obviously I think you know that's probably gonna be uh, we still need to unwrap every individual member story so it'll probably be like a series of like mini tragedies or mini unfortunate circumstances until they get to that point but still I think that ultimately the series is giving me glimpses that it is trying to reach a point of hope and happiness for these characters and I want to see them reach that point I want to learn more about them and then I want to see them find kind of the happiness in their new life as a new family that they couldn't as they formerly were as a family in their old lives. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call it now. I feel like one of the big twists that's coming up is because I couldn't help but think of this just now. I kind of wonder if like one of the big twists coming up is that maybe like none of them are related at all. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, it's like some social experiment thing where they have been like kind of asked to be a family and then like that has all been changed under official documents and stuff like that. And it's like this bigger social experiment conspiracy thing. Yeah, I kind of feel like maybe that's where it's going to go. But again, we'll have to wait and see. Um, You kind of mentioned it earlier, but... um. So I mentioned on the show before that I haven't read any of Takapi's original Sin, but I, I know of it by reputation, and I, I know it's very good, and I know people really like it, and I, I really do need to get to it at some point, because that's also another series I think that would be really up my alley. But um, yeah, I... God, uh, the art in this is really, really good. I love every two-page spread. I love the way that Ties on Five illustrates, like, because I think some of the best two-page spreads in this series have that sort of, like, warped perspective, like the establishing shots of, like, them in their old house and, like, Tsubasa in his classroom. Like, I just, I love the way those, like, warped perspective shots look. Those are amazing. The warped perspective <laughs> shots are incredible his sense of perspective his sense of communicating like unease and feelings of like out of placeness true perspective is just so powerful it's really masterful stuff. Uh, I also love the way that, like, when all the kids, like, you know, like, say, when Subasa gets, like, food scraps dumped on him, like, man, the loving detail of, like, every scrap in that pail and, like, the way that, like, in, I think in the chapter after that where, like, someone, like, throws their old milk at him and it's just, like, mid-splash, like, all the milk just, like, suspended in the air. Like, the attention to detail on that stuff is, like, so loving and it's, I... Just how 
clutter the <laughs> family's rooms are too it's just... how is this a weekly comic <laughs> yeah it's just so like the attention to detail i think in the art is i think is what really impresses me the most and i i especially love like the character design work in this too because uh and i i don't know if you'll agree with me on this or not the best thing i can compare it to is like I feel like the characters sort of are designed like Shin-Chan characters almost, just like in the way they're shaped and in the way that like in some shots where like sort of their facial expressions are like arranged or whatever, like specifically in the way that like some characters like like one of their eyes will be higher up than the other, like just certain little details like that. For some reason, Shin-Chan was the first thing that kind of came to mind. I think their face shapes could be similar. I think that the faces in general are more detail than Shin Chan characters but you know Shin Chan is also a very expressive series you know very strong gestures and poses so like I think that Tyson's own style is very strong in that liveliness he has of his designs. Yeah, obviously I'm not saying it's the exact same thing but I just feel like I noticed like there are certain like similarities in the way that his characters look that like just kind of remind me of Shin Chan in particular. It's like it's it's like the best thing I can use to like kind of describe how I think it looks. Mm-hmm. Cause otherwise it, it really doesn't look like anything I've read in a while. Like Tizon 5 style is all their own. Like when I read this, I'm you know, this is a comic where I feel like, oh, if I read something else from this author, I'll be like, yes, this is a Tizon 5 comic. Like he clearly has his own style to him that makes him very like recognizable from other manga artists Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean i feel like this is one of those series where like i have more feelings than i do like thoughts like i i don't know like i'm just i'm just so excited to read more of this and i really genuinely want this to do well in jump i really don't want this to get canceled i'm praying that it doesn't because i really need i really need to see like where the story is going and i would really hate for it to get canned in the middle Mm mm-hmm but also, I do have a feeling that, like, somehow if this were to get canned, I feel like Tizon 5 could maybe make that work for them. I feel like the story could still end up being pretty good, even if that does happen. But I'm I'm still hoping that doesn't happen, though. I'm just saying, if that were the case. Yeah, I mean, I'm just not going to worry about it right now and just enjoy the story as it comes. That's fair. So I think that's the best we can We don't know what the future will bring when it comes to how these new series will pan out. I do agree. Of all these new series, uh, this is the one that I am rooting for the most. For sure, for sure. And like I said earlier, if you are not into this kind of series, that's totally understandable. Like, if you're not in the right headspace for it, I could see how this would really kind of, like, screw somebody up. But still, like, if you are in the mood for something like this and you're at all interested in it, like, please check it out. I really do think it's worth checking out. It's just so good so far. But yeah, the next series, I have more mixed thoughts about if we just want to, like, get into that one. Yeah, I mean, the next series is also by a returning creator, a creator who has had experience in Shonen Jump before. Nizio Izin has returned to Shonen Jump with a new manga uh, with art provided by Yuji Iwasaki. Izin, of course, previously did Madaka Box in Jump, like, many uh, years ago, a decade plus ago. And that was a very successful series. And, of course, you know, he's a popular light novel author who has had many manga adaptations of his work and written many other manga. But uh, because he's a light 
like novel author, primarily a storyteller, you know, one of the, the big obsessions, uh, a big tendencies he has is that he's very verbose. Uh, he's very also interested in language and playing on language, making puzzles out of language. And uh, that's kind of the core of this series is of Cypher Academy uh, is that it's about this, you know, academy that is kind of an alternative history to Japan. Uh, it's kind of based on like a real history of fact of like in World War II, a group of women basically formed a crypto analysis unit and basically were the proto NSA. And so Cypher Academy is kind of inspired by that idea. It's like kind of Japan's like military code breaking school that it's also an all female academy and kind of the same tradition of how like the first code breakers or the essential code breakers in the World War II were women. Though, in this case, they have kind of a new policy that they've instituted where, you know, even though it's mostly an all-female school, they have allowed it so that there's at least one male student per class. And wouldn't you know it, that male student in this class, that's the centerpiece of the story, is our protagonist. Though he's a very feminine-looking boy, uh, his name is Iroha Hirazaki. And he... You know, we don't really know why he's even uh, in this school because I guess he found the school appealing to go to because it was progressive, but then he didn't realize it was a military school. Like, it's really confusing, like, how he got into the school without knowing so much about it, I guess. But uh, the main thing is because he really is so out of place here, like, and so unprepared to be a part of school, like, he is not really uh, on the same level as his class classmates in terms of his puzzle solving ability and co-breaking abilities he really struggles with it uh it doesn't come easy to him but he is a kind-hearted person so like when he's like noticing like this girl who is like running away from the class prima donna basically he agrees to like kind of hide her and in thanks for hiding her from uh Toshu Sai who comes from like a prestigious like military family and stuff he becomes friends with the girl Kogue Horagatoge and she gives him like these special glasses and these glasses when he puts them on it helps him kind of figure out how to solve puzzles like it basically gives him the cheat of like hey here is how you approach solving the puzzle. And then it doesn't solve the puzzle for him. He still has to do the actual puzzle solving, but it basically gives him the tip of like, oh, here's what the puzzle is. Here's how you approach it. And that cat, you know, he solves like a introduction crossword puzzle. And that kind of gets the attention of his classmates, namely Toshu Sai, finds it very suspicious that he was able to solve this puzzle. And also that he like was hiding uh, Kogo yesterday. He might have been given the glasses by her. So she tests him out by like giving him like a hard puzzle to solve. And he uses the glasses to solve this word puzzle. And basically, it turns out to be a cryptogram where like the, the test was like, hey, you know, whose name is in this cryptogram? Like, what does it, who does it refer to? And it's like, oh, you thought like it was just going to be Toshizai and her friends. But no, it's also when she said, oh, who does it refer to of the people here, like including Iraha. And so he figures it out. Oh. Yeah, it was, it was me. And basically, as a condition for solving the puzzle, Toshu Sai to basically become his servant, though, of course, Toshu Sai is very uh, antagonistic and working against him and trying to figure out how to get the glass from him, as are her friends slash uh, sworded followers, Yukiko and Yugata. 
But basically, what Kogai wants to do is that she wants to recruit Iroa to help her solve puzzles, basically become the top of the class, because, like, everyone is in competition, basically, everyone who's come to the school, to really find a way to get access to, like, the huge assets of cryptocurrency that the Academy holds. They say it's, like, 50 million more, and it's, like, worth, like, <laughs> the defense budget of several, in GDPs of, like, several countries. It's like that much in value. And basically, like, she pitches this to Iroha saying, like, hey, you are maybe not a natural, like, publisher, but you have, like, kind of your own, like, special knack for solving them that I don't have. So, you know, will you help me out with this? But Iroha, you know, doesn't really have the confidence and so kind of turns her down. So Kogue is now trying to figure out ways to, like, kind of build up Iroha's confidence, who he does agree to work for her, while Toshusai's friend are trying to figure out ways to get the glasses from Iroha because even though Kogoi says like, hey, you know, I'm going to use the morgue, I'm going to use the old money and wealth to put a stop to wards, in actuality, she is someone who plans to be a, a bigger warmonger and war profiteer than even Toshusai. So it's a situation of like, hmm, who can Iroha trust? Who can he really hmm. believe in? And um, it's an interesting thing. I have a feeling that Kogoi Kogoe's intentions are completely black and white, whether she is, like, villain or hero. And there might be more to the idea of, like, if she has that money, she'll start wars or end wars and whatnot. But, um, it's interesting. I, I feel like the dynamics, the intention between the different characters and factions are interesting. I think the main problem I'm having with the series is just the puzzles themselves are not that satisfying to follow. Because a lot of them are based in, like, you know, Japanese wordplay or kanji and stuff like that. And it's... Not not something that as English readers uh, you can automatically figure out and also I think a big problem that is kind of improving with her chapter like I'm finding Iroha more and more endearing but it still feels like very contrived and odd that he is in the setting as someone who like doesn't he didn't know anything about the school or have any like knack or talent for solving puzzles so you, you have to wonder like why is he here why is he our protagonist in this very particular situation how did he end up here other than the necessity of being there for the plot, for there to be a plot. So um, that's a barrier that I think that the series is going to have to really convince me on. It's like, why Iroha is here justifying like what his place? I'm sure there might be even a bigger like mystery reasoning that might be a shoe that drops of like, oh, why Iroha got into this school? Like it was uh, old plan from the start, even though he didn't really know anything about it. Someone else had other plans in mind, putting him in the situation and along these like eclectic group of classmates and stuff. So yeah, there's some barriers to like fully enjoying it, but I think like in terms of core character tension and uh, intrigue, I'm finding it interesting. And I also think like the art's very strong. I really like the character designs and it also has a lot of really funny moments. Like I really love <laughs> the Pumanich chapter three where like Hero has challenged like, hey, uh, you can either have a dance battle or a code battle. And so you choose 
here's the dance battle, and he turns out to be a really great dancer. And so, like, uh, Tojo says to Morgan, like, uh, okay, so uh, here's the puzzle. You have to do this all Wait, that's not the deal. So uh, there's fun moments, like, there's just fun character uh, beats like that, that it's uh, slowly warming me up and endearing it to uh, a little bit more. But um, I definitely do feel that there's going to be some issues for, uh, especially us English readers enjoying it. And uh, there's some issues with the setup also. Yeah, the the whole thing about trying to solve these codes and the fact that like they do involve like so much Japanese wordplay, like I think that was kind of the thing that was kind of keeping me from totally wanting to read more of this. Like I said, I'm I'm very mixed on this because like I don't know if I'm that invested in like the story and the characters so far. Though like it, it does help that like you said in chapter two we do have this sort of question of like oh who should Iroha trust and who should he like align himself with like that. That's that's kind of a nice hook. That's like simple enough gets the job done. It like kind of makes me interested in wanting to read more, but not enough to the point where it's like, I don't know if I really want to keep up with this weekly or not. I don't know, because I'm I'm mixed because like the story hasn't like totally grabbed me yet, but I really do love the art. I really love the way that the series is like shot and sequenced. Honestly, I think my favorite thing about this comic so far is um, I really love the sound effects so far. I really love, especially at the start of chapter two, when like Iroha has to do like a stupid Morse code puzzle in order to get lunch. And he ends up getting like this large like katsudan bowl or whatever. And I really love like the large sound effect in English. And I really love the shine on it or whatever that kind of makes it look like it's like inflatable or whatever. Like I really love how like with that and literally on the next page when uh, Kogoe is like eating a hot dog with mayo on it, I think. And she like... When she squirts out the mayo, the mayo coming out of the bottle, like, makes up, like, the slurping sound effect. Like, that stuff is genuinely, like, really creative, you know? Like, I, I love that the sound effects in this particular instance, like, you know, like, you've heard people say before that, like, the sound effects are part of the comics art, and that's true. But, like, I feel like in this case specifically, like, yes, the sound effects are a part of the art. And, like, they really stand out in a way that's, like, really fun and, like, makes the series really fun to read and kind of easy to appreciate on, like a technical level like I, I really love those details yeah and, and it makes me wonder like if this series ever gets like a print release maybe one day possibly we'll see about that but it would be really cool if, if that were if that were to happen i would love to see like how someone were to like retouch that in particular mm -hmm, for sure yeah I, I also agree that sound effects are strength but and the art in general is like a huge strength even though it's a very talking series so far like it is really good at having like these kind of dramatic moments especially like these moments were like again moments of tension of like just glares and expressions between characters like yeah just kind of the intimidating glance <laughs> that Toshusai gives Yeroha that her subordinates give her him and then yeah also just really strong dynamic poses that are fun to see like I I really love the, the freaking dance scene in the latest chapter <laughs> like it, it's so it's short but like just the few panels they have is so much movement and motion and it just has really good comedic timing i just find it's really charming and i also uh, just character designs are all so varied and different interesting like we get in the second chapter just a, a full look at like the class roster and like God, all yeah. of these characters are just so different from one another 
Lauren. So there's such interesting weirdos in the group that I want to learn more about and hope the series can explore more. But yeah, they're all really, really fun character designs, really, really interesting and different. And that's really refreshing, like, because a lot of times, like, in shonen manga, female character designs can look a little samey, but like, these characters all have such really expressive, distinctive looks, and I think that's great. And also, Iroha, I like that he's a very feminine character. Like, he's a feminine main character, and that's not something that's, like, really chastised or criticized. In fact, it's something that people are praising him for. Like, oh man, you know, he's so cute. He's cuter than a girl when he's dancing. And yeah, that's that's very gender feelsy, and I like that. I think that's neat. It's an endearing aspect of having a protagonist like that. It's uh, refreshing. It's very different from what you'd expect out of a jump protagonist and a male protagonist in Shonen Jump too. Oh, for sure. So, yeah, there are a lot of fun points at its favor, aesthetically and conceptually. I think there's just going to be barriers in terms of, like, communicating these puzzles in a way that's entertaining for an English readership. And also, again, the setup has some clunkiness, some things that don't quite seem to justify themselves that have to need to be more convincing. And hopefully uh, they'll be able to convince me. But, yeah. I mean, just to go back to Iroha as like a more feminine jump character, you know, we, we even got a moment where like after he shows off his cool dance moves and Yukako is like, oh, for a boy, you sure are graceful. And like Yugata is like, hey, like, what does that matter? Basically. And she's saying it while it's blushing, too. It's like, you know, he's he's a cute boy. <laughs> like, so we're just have, let's not sidestep it. You know, he's cute. Yeah, I like how they get called out for, like, making very gendered comments like that. Like, I enjoyed that detail. Yeah, it's like, get over it. Like, he's cute. We're <laughs> like, just going to acknowledge matter. that he's cute. He's a cutie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and and she kind of, like, walks back, like, okay, fine. You're, you're, th- those were brilliant. I liked your dance moves or whatever. Like, I, I do appreciate that moment because I, I think we should normalize more of that kind of thing. Yeah. But then also, I'm, I was really trying to find it and I can't, but like, I do agree that like him being in this like all girls school is definitely like a contrivance. I want to say there's like a throwaway line where he mentions like he only got into the school because like there was no like entrance exams or whatever, but I'm sure there was probably like a bigger reason why he's in the school that maybe we're just not privy to yet, maybe. Yeah, I think it's got to be a better justification than that because like, again, otherwise the main thing is here, this is a series uh, it's about puzzle solving and code breaking. Like you have a protagonist who's like so out of place because they didn't want to go to school. They don't have a talent or interest in it. They really have to be kind of be pulled into this world. But then why are they in this world to begin with? There has to be like a better reason than just this happenstance of like, oh, there was no entrance exam. So you just kind of (laughs) wandered into the situation without any knowledge of what's going on. Yeah, I will say even though I'm still not totally sure about whether I want to keep up with this while it's running or not. I will say that like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the whole thing where it's like, oh, we don't know about Kogue yet, like whether she's actually good or evil or whether her intentions are like gray or not. We don't totally know what like her full deal is just yet. So again, that's a good hook. And also, I like that they're already like challenging Iroha to like try to solve a code without the glasses because the glasses at the end of chapter three have like run out of battery, like right before he's supposed to like solve a code. And now now we're going to have to see him like possibly figure it out without the help of Kogue's glasses. And I, I kind of want to see how that goes. 
see how they handle that. Because that's, I do appreciate that they're already kind of like throwing him a curveball like this early on. Because I think it would have been easy for this series to like constantly just have Iroha rely on the glasses solely to like figure out all these codes. But like, I don't think that would have made for an interesting series if that went on long enough and we were just like allowed him to win with all this help. Like, I like that he's at a disadvantage already. That does make things more interesting already, like this early off the bat. Yeah, I think so. He is a likable character, and yeah. I think that, you know, he has something to work towards. And we are seeing at the end of this third chapter that, hey, with the glasses, you know, having run out of batteries, he's going to have to figure out how to solve this puzzle by himself. So slowly, I think we'll see him get more of a knack for solving these puzzles on his own, too. And then realizing, hey, maybe he has a knack and talent for it even beyond the crutch of the glasses. Mm -hmm. But yeah, overall, like I said, I do think that unfortunately, because this is a very Japanese language heavy series, that I think as English readers that there is that barrier to kind of overcome, unfortunately. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I do think there are like things about the series that I really like, but I don't know. This is a very strong maybe for me. Like, I might try to keep up with this, but I don't really know yet for sure. But there is enough here to get behind, I think. Yeah, I think so. I think there is a lot of potential in this story and this premise, and I want to see where it's going, because it started off kind of on a tough note for me. But with every subsequent chapter, I've become, I found the characters more and more endearing. So that's making me interested in like continuing to follow Reader Long. And I'm getting also incredibly interested in just kind of the tension, the battle of wits, even though the puzzles themselves are not something I'm totally invested in in of themselves yet. No, the puzzles are like, for us in particular, I think are just like totally impossible for us to like follow along with, unfortunately, because we don't know enough of the language at least most of them yeah that are rooted in japanese language and writing yeah so again that's a high barrier of entry i'm i feel like it's probably going to be for most english readers but if you, if you can get past that maybe there's something here i'm willing to stick with it for a little bit see how it goes but yeah i'm still kind of on the fence about this one but i am kind of leaning positively towards it more than i am negatively which is good at least all right but i think we should get on to the one gag series in this batch yeah. And, you know, speaking of series from returning creators, uh, this is yet another one because this is another series from the creator of I'm from Japan, Seiji Hayashi, returning to Weekly Shonen Jump. This series is Ichigoki's Under Control. And this is a fun premise of like basically our main character, Kai Ichigoki, his best friend, his childhood friend, uh, Misao, she had the dream since she was a child of becoming a mad scientist and to her credit she is uh, quite a genius if a bit of a debts and she found a way to turn herself tiny basically shrink herself and <laughs> she made a shrink medicine so she could live in her dollhouse but she's stuck like this and she needs a lot of animal testicles <laughs> in order to make a <laughs> potion to grow herself uh, a lot of nuts as Kai points out uh, so she begs Kai to take her to the zoo where a horny eastern lowland gorilla goes berserk and uh murders him <laughs> and basically misao uh, rebuilds kai as a cyborg that she pilots inside his mind as basically like a giant uh robot 
So now Kai is going to basically have to continue like his school life with Misao piloting him, basically able to control his body movements and stuff. And yeah, so in addition to like throwing him to a cyber, he also like has super strength powers and stuff. So like they encounter the little, the eastern gorilla that murdered him who escaped from the zoo and is hunting down like a woman who's carrying a bunch of bananas that are like a keepsake from her mother, which is another funny gag. Like why would a <laughs> disposable <laughs> produce be a keepsake? But basically, yeah, you know, Kai has super robot powers, like, you know, detachable arms and stuff so he <laughs> sends the gorilla back to the zoo and he like crashes into the school making a big entrance so he and Miss Sao can uh, live their school lives together even though they're both in compromised situations so like he's a cyborg she's shrunk but now together they can enjoy their high school life and yeah it's a good thing that their school is very chill and doesn't no one really asks any questions especially the teacher especially the teacher just does not care he's like okay cool you, you solve the problem okay Okay, cool. You <laughs> stop the <laughs> bank robber who's holding us hostage. Okay, cool. You know, uh, the school day's still happening. The four period is supposed to start. But you know what? It feels like the day's work is you go. Everyone go home. It's just very laissez-faire. Honestly, if I were a teacher and my classroom got held up by a bank robber, I'd just send everyone home, too. I think that makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, But... Yeah, this series is pretty funny. I really think it's funny. And I, I, I want to credit David Evelyn. Good friend, translator, like just just amazing, amazing, funny translation job. Like just really bringing his end game to like the jokes here. Like the nuts joke, just so many great fun choices and wordplay. It really is a... See, this is an example of like why translation, why topic on translation is so important because the humor just lands so well. It could so easily just fall flat, but the translation work really brings out the best of the jokes in the, in the original work and uh it's just real really fun to read oh for sure like i said this series is very funny i really love the premise of this it's so out there <laughs> it's so like yeah. ridiculous like when masao and kai are kind of like doing that whole thing where it's like masao keeps popping out of all of kai's like orifices or whatever and he plays like self whack-a-mole as he calls it yeah. uh that felt very like Dr. Slump to me. It has very Dr. Slump energy. Yeah. <laughs> Except a little more rude or explicit in terms of like <laughs> horny Eastern Lowland gorilla, but like there's some similar joke energy for sure. Yeah. It's kind of like Midori Days meets Dr. Slump, you know, with the fact that, oh, this guy's close female friend is like now miniature sized and like <laughs> basically a part of his body. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Midori Days. I still haven't read that. It's a fun one. But yeah, this is, uh, it's, it's got a lot of fun gags and energy to it. Just really great physical comedy, weird expressions, and just earnestly likable characters uh, as well. That just have fun personalities that bounce off each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think. I feel like I haven't liked a gag series this much since, um, since Mitama Security, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I have to no roboco how could oh yeah yeah roboco yeah i forgot yeah i forgot about roboco i'm sorry yeah okay i haven't liked a gas series this much since roboco yeah okay 
I don't know how I could forget Roboco. Whoops. Yeah, I think this is the strongest start to a gag series uh, since Roboco. Basically, yeah, since Roboco, I haven't liked a gag series like this much out of the gate. Like, I genuinely do think there like are some good funny jokes in here. I was, <laughs> I, w- I just wasn't expecting such a like drastic page turn from, okay, I guess I'll go with you to get your ingredients to, oh, <laughs> fucking gorilla killed me. <laughs> I just wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I think I think that was like the biggest laugh I got out of the first chapter. Um, and I guess um, oh, I don't want to talk about the twist in chapter two because I actually legitimately didn't see that coming. And that, that actually, I think other than the gorilla punchline, I think that was the biggest laugh that this series got out of me so far. It felt very similar to like a Duval reveal in One Piece. And that, that that's all I'll say about that. But yeah, no, I don't. I just, I don't really have a whole lot to say about this other than it's very funny so far, and I'm, I'm definitely gonna read more. Yeah, no, I, I have a lot of fun with this series, and I'm really enjoying myself. So I'm really going to enjoy a, a continuing to follow it because uh, it's made me laugh out loud just genuinely so many times in both of these chapters so far. So it's off to a really strong start for a comedy. For sure, for sure. I guess we can get on to our last series then. I know that we said that we didn't want to end on a downer, but this is somewhat of a deflation because these other three series are all... Not because I think it's a bad series, but just these other three series were just so interesting and different, and there's a lot of unique things they're bringing to the table. This one... I feel, well, this is kind of of a formula of a type of story we've seen before. But let's get into it. This is from our newest creator to join this lineup of new series here. Uh, this series is called Fabricant 100 by Daisuke Inoshima. And this series is basically about this kid called Ashibi Yao. And he's traveling along with his companion, who is, you know, the big reveal we'll get to in a minute. But it seems to be like kind of an older woman who's like very protective of him. And basically he's looking and hunting down these fabricants, which were like mock human beings, like man-made human beings that were created by a doctor who was interested in creating the ideal human being. He created a hundred of these. And after he created the hundredth one, he died. And after he died, like all the fabricants, you know, they kind of dispersed and became obsessed with becoming the ideal humans they were meant to promise to be and they were like okay well to become ideal humans the real humans we needed to steal real flesh and real body parts and replace our bodies with superior human flesh so basically these fabricants are going around hunting down people who have exceptional like body parts and stuff and like murdering them and taking them for themselves and Yao is hunting down these fabricants because as it uh, turns out his entire family was known for being like extremely healthy they'd had eternal youth and longevity they had like life expectancies that averaged 110 years of age and then just one night the entire family was murdered by these replicants with Yao, like, Ashibi, like, the only survivor. And so he kind of decided to strike a deal with the replicants to save his life, but also get revenge for the murder of his family by basically, like, promising them, hey, you know, everyone in my family was already over the age 20, but I'm still a teen. When I become 18, I'll be in my peak physical condition. That'll be, like, the most perfect body, and I'll take care of my 
body and tell them, I'll give it to one of you in exchange from eliminating all of the other fabricants from the world. And basically that catches the attention of fabricant number 100, who was, of course, the last fabricant to be made by the doctor. And of course, the strongest because she was the last. All the fabricants grow in strength with each subsequent iteration. And so she's the strongest as the hundredth one as the last one. And so she accepts his offer and will basically agree to hunt down the other fabricants with him in exchange for his body when he turns 18 years of age. So she's helping him out, hunt down and fight and destroy all these other fabricants. That's basically what they do in this chapter is that there's this fabricant that they're hunting down who's like attacking people on trains. Like he attacks a guy's wife and took her eyes and so they fight against it and basically defeat it and they kind of take back the stolen wife's eyes and return it to her husband and stuff. But yeah, that's that's basically where the premise of the series is. And at the end of the chapter, we have the reveal that, okay, they have 82 fabricants left to hunt down. So they've already gotten rid of 17 of these. But uh, yeah, what I'm, I mean, I think this is a fine Star Trek series. I like Fabricant 100. I think she has a fun personality and banter with Ashibi. There's some good jokes with her, like she being super overprotective about like him eating a burger and worrying about him biting his tongue. And then she's like, gets upset at the other fabricant for like begging Yao for like his arm and like punches him out his face out by like angry that he's like causing him stress and saying like the stress isn't healthy for him. And then she at the end, she's like seriously thinking about, hmm, you know, why don't you just pick out some other humans who look like a family, you know? She like seriously is like, oh, you know, maybe this won't make happy. Maybe you should just pick out some other humans to be your family. So like she has some fun uh, humorous gag moments like that. And she also is cool in the action sequences too. So I like, I'm liking her. I like that the art style of the series, the designs are pretty clearing and the format, the layouts are very nice and, and readable. Like it's not as busy a comic as like some others can be. So I appreciate kind of just the visual, like simplicity and directness of it. I think it like works very well. Mm-hmm. But um, again, what I meant earlier when I said that this felt like kind of a deflate is that this is a type of premise and series that we've seen, you know, many uh, times before. For sure. You know, hunting down like kind of artificial humans or monsters, teaming up with that same monster to hunt down others of its ilk. You know, this is in terms of premise, also in terms of making a deal with the devil uh, to hunt down other devils. It's like, oh, well, this dynamic is very much Black Butler to me where it's like OCL promised his soul to Sebastian in exchange for Sebastian to serve him until a certain point and that's the same thing here with Oshibi and 100. I would argue actually because uh, it turns out actually that Enoshima was an assistant under Yusei Matsui and so I wouldn't be surprised. I mean I I guess I don't know if he worked with him during Nero but it is kind of interesting that Enoshima series kind of has like a sort of similar dynamic to Yaku and Nero almost. Yeah you know I don't I mean personality wise I don't think Ishibi's too much like Yaku but Not definitely really, no. now that you bring that up I think a hundred I definitely could see some personality similarities to Nero there yeah so yeah no that's that's a good catch and uh i think i can definitely see that stylistically i can now even see yeah not just in writing but also a little bit art wise too so yeah 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's interesting. I get that. I think this is a very solid uh, start, and there's a lot of likable things about it. It's just that it's it doesn't stand out compared to the other three. Yeah, it's just a very straightforward execution of a premise type that has been we've seen done in other iterations before. And it remains to be seen if this series can find a way to stand out from the series that you know will be compared to, like the likes of Black Butler. So yeah, it's just compared to the other series, they just feel very unique. Like you can say that, oh, they're of a certain genre in the case of a Cypher Academy. But premise-wise, and just in terms of, like, their elements, they feel still very unique from other things we've seen. Yeah, in I'd say this so. This one is like, okay, this is this is what you'd expect from a battle shown among. It's like kind of the standard or, or a very regular type of template for a setup for a shonen series. Compared to the other series, at least, yeah. Yeah, at least comparatively. So that's kind of what I meant when I was saying that this is a bit of a deflation. And just in terms of my incitement and enthusiasm for it, it's a bit deflated just because it's, you know, it just feels like, okay, this doesn't bring too much new to the table. Whereas all these other series were like, oh man, there's just, there's a lot I'm excited about for this because it feels like this is doing something really new and interesting. But this one, I think, is just a very solid execution of stuff that is familiar, but, you know, still done well so um i'm still interested in seeing how it will uh, continue to build upon itself yeah i kind of feel the same way like i think the thing is and obviously at the time of recording this only the first chapter is out like we're, we're literally recording this the day that this first chapter came out so we're pretty fresh off of this but um yeah i think just going off the first chapter alone i think the thing is the first chapter is good and it tells a wanted done complete story and i appreciate that but it feels like the job of this first chapter in particular is to, like, set up the premise, and that's kind of it. It sets it up pretty well, but, like, that's kind of mostly what we get. And it's very effective. It's, it's done well, but that, that's kind of all it is. So, like, now the thing is, oh, we need to see, like, what the rest of the series is going to be like after this is the thing. And I, I think that's the biggest reason why I'm, I don't know if I'm like totally ready to like judge this on just the first chapter yet, because I, I do think it's solid as well, but it's going to depend on where the rest of the series, at least where the next like couple chapters go from here. It's, it's going to depend on that for me to like really form like a full opinion, I think. But otherwise, I'm feeling positive on it. I do think it's good, but I do agree that like, it's not like there are aspects of this setup and premise that like we've seen in other series before. Like, honestly, as soon as I read oh they have to like go and find other fabricants to go fight i was like oh here's another like sort of collect-a-thon series almost like oh we gotta we gotta find more of the jewel shards or oh we have to fight a hundred demons or whatever like in zatch bell or you know like stuff like that like it's a very collect-a-thon kind of series almost except we have to find more fabricants to fight so like there are aspects to the series that like again are similar to other things we've read but i don't know like it's done well, but it just doesn't really, like, stand out, which is unfortunate, because, like, I, I do like the art in this, but even then, like, honestly, even before I realized, like, oh, this person worked under Matsui, Matsui didn't really come to mind while I was reading this, surprisingly. Like, for some reason, I, at least from the very little I've read of it, like, aesthetically, this sort of reminded me more of, like, Muyo and Roji, almost somehow mm, i'm not really sure yeah. i'm not really sure like why that came to mind because i don't know if these series are really that similar but i don't know it, i couldn't help but think of like other series like while i read this and i don't know if that's really always a good thing i guess it's kind of where i'm at yeah no i think that's fair for sure 
But I mean, you know, th th this series was interesting to me because I want to say this was the winner of the recent like Golden Future Cup that happened in Jump recently. So I really want to see what the series has to offer considering it did win that competition. So I'm I would like to believe that Jump Editorial obviously has enough faith in this to be like, okay, well, since this won, this should be the thing that gets a series or whatever. Like, I, I have to think that they think that, like, there's something to this in order to, like, get a full series out of it, you know? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I guess the only other thing I'll mention is I definitely thought, because we, we get the flashback to where, like, Ashibi's family is obviously massacred in front of him. And, you know, there's that moment where, like, his big sister, like, blocks an attack from one of the fabricants. And that's a pretty sad scene. I did think for a second that, like, Fabricant 100 was, like, somehow his sister, because it definitely seems like, at the beginning of the chapter, like, before we got any more additional details, like, I did just assume, like, oh, is that, like, his mother or his sister? Like, I did think that she was, like, his guardian or whatever, but, no, okay, it, it just turns out, like, oh, she's just a completely separate being, Fabricant. She's not, like, a part of his family at all. That's where I thought this was gonna go. I mean, maybe the Fabricants could be related to his family, like maybe and the doctor yeah i guess and so. stuff like that and that could explain like why they might look similar or it could just be that the artist had a similar style for book characters because it is some you know 100 is taking the place of his protective sister yeah so that kind of communicates the idea but yeah i mean there's probably gonna be more to the backstory of the Giao family and the doctor and all that stuff there might be more of a connection between them uh we'll see what it does with that and so far, it seems like the episodic premise is just them going around and finding new replicant uh, fabricants and taking them out. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing how long this will stay episodic until it like maybe works up to like a bigger arc. I'm assuming that's where the series is going to go. This is usually how these kinds of series go, at least in my experience. Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, unfortunately, because we only got to read the first chapter, I, I don't have a whole lot to say, but I'm feeling positive on it. Again, it's obviously not the most original thing out of this batch, but like I'm not opposed to keeping up with it for now. I, I do want to give it more of a chance and see where it goes. Yeah, I will agree with that. I, I mean, I enjoyed this first chapter enough to want to see what it could build upon. I, I mean, I like the character of a hundred enough in particular that I'd like to see more of her. So yeah, I mean, maybe uh, this will surprise us and it'll have uh, quite a longevity in of itself. Maybe it'll last a hundred chapters. Maybe it'll last a uh, hundred to ten years like the Yao family. We'll see. I guess we'll have to see. Uh, overall, I thought this batch of Jump series was, I'm, I'm gonna say it was pretty strong. I do think so. Yeah, because e even with this and, like, as mixed as I am right now on Cypher Academy, every series still had something that I could latch onto and something that I liked. I don't think there was, like, a bad series in this batch, at least not in my opinion. Yeah, no, this was a really nice, eclectic, interesting batch of new series to end the year on. And yeah, I just like seeing just this fresh blood, fresh energy in the lineup. So yeah, I think that it's really nice. And I'm looking forward to seeing how these series will fare in 2023. And I'm hoping that, you know, especially Ichinose Deadly Sins uh, and Ichigoke have some really bright futures ahead. I'm looking forward to seeing Cypher Academy uh, continue to build on itself and win me over. And uh, also seeing how Fabricant 100 develops as well. For sure. So yeah, they're really strong. And um yeah, I think overall, this was a pretty decent year for Shonen Jump's new series. I mean, not all of them were hits, necessarily. Yeah. But <laughs> I don't think there were a ton of, like, outright disasters or duds that debuted this year. 
I mean, I think some people uh, were really, really down on our child. I'm not as harsh on it, though it definitely had its story problems. Smooper smartphone was uh, was a disappointing kind of putter out, I would say, I guess. But also I wouldn't say that was like terrible either. Huh? It was just like it didn't really work itself out. Earthchild makes me really sad because I, I genuinely love the way that series started. But I, I guess, admittedly, I, I, I didn't get the chance to, like, keep up with it uh, because I, I've been having trouble keeping up with Jump most of the year this year, unfortunately. But, yeah, I, I do want to get back to it and see how it ended. Yeah, I think the series that I probably, of uh, the newest series that I probably disliked the most <laughs> reading, or was the most frustrated reading, was Doron Dororon. But that mm. started at, at the end of last year. So I would say that generally 2022 was an interesting batch new series for jump even if not all of them were successful i would say like the ones that were the least strong of the batch have already ended so i'm interested in seeing how the rest will fare judging solely on hearsay on my part i think out of all the series that have been canceled this year that like i feel like i'm probably like looking forward to covering eventually the least is probably aliens area oh i forgot about aliens <laughs> area you know uh, i forgot Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> that one's probably sweet. the biggest dud from what I hear. Um, yeah, I mean, that one, unfortunately, like it couldn't, it, it got the least far and um, yeah, it had the most abrupt ending. So that probably is the worst off of all these. <laughs> the least or child, you could say, oh, well, it's self-contained, you know, and then Super Smartphone, not less so, but um, at least it didn't feel the need to try and like rush to an ending by uh, speed running through an arc that had set up uh, necessarily. So, you know, uh, get, yeah, Aliens Area. And also the fact that I forgot about Aliens Area uh, also <laughs> probably is some in condemnation of it. It's memorability. So. That's really funny. I'm glad that we've gotten our thoughts on some of these canceled series out of the way because hopefully soon we'll record our jump retrospective this year it probably won't be out till the end of january because we some of us need a little bit more time to catch up but yeah uh, so lum and i probably won't talk about them as much on our end but i'm genuinely interested in like asking maxi about like their thoughts on like which of these series that ended up being canceled like stood out to them the most yeah same here it's always fun to talk to maxi about jump and especially the new stuff and jump and their thoughts on it so it's gonna be a fun one to do when we get around to our recording for sure but until then yeah i think that about does it for all of our simul pubs that we have to cover and lum i think it's time to get on to community shout outs Indeed. If you want more opinions, more perspectives on the latest batch of new Jump series, I recommend checking out the Multiverse Day Manga Club's latest uh, episode, Rounding Up. Remember in Shonen Jump, they discuss their thoughts on Ichinose Family, uh, Ichigoki's Under Control and Cypher Academy. They were pretty positive on Ichinose Family and Ichigoki, with some reservations, some questions on Ichinose and where it's going. They were pretty harsh on Cypher Academy. They just outright did not like it. <laughs> they didn't like the premise and think it, it didn't work for them. Uh, they also just fundamentally are adverse to the elements of crypto and uh, in the series as well. That's and totally like what fair. The messaging yeah. is, which yeah, it is is fair. I feel like you know, obviously, it's going to be it's playing with political themes, 
but it doesn't seem like it actually is like interested in the politics necessarily. So, you know, it's a thing that it's like a wait and read thing for me right now with like what it actually has to say about that. If it actually has anything real to say or it's just like for the sake of the premise. But yeah, no, I think those were very uh, fair points and very fair criticisms and just good conversations on uh, those series as well as some catch up on thoughts on how Chainsaw Man is going and stuff. So always enjoy Walt and Emily's thoughts on the series. And, um, yeah, I think we should check them out if you want other opinions. Also, uh, check out Manga Crash's uh, video on Ichinose Family and Cypher Academy. He also had some good assessments. Also brought up some of, uh, both the praises and the criticisms that we have about both series and also the concerns in terms of, like, their viability, uh, ability to attract an audience in the case of both series. So... You know, I also always enjoy his thoughts on the newest round of jump stuff. So, uh, yeah, check that out. On the subject of videos, of course, you know, a big video that came out recently was Ray Mona's Secret Stories of Saint Seiya, her latest deep dive into lost anime American media. And, you know, following up on her exploration and digging up, like, the Saban Moon, quote-unquote, Sailor Moon pilot, she looked into seeing if she could find the stars Storm pilot, basically the live action American adaptation of Saint Sia that was being made in the 90s that we have like 20 second teaser of circulated on the internet, but you know, we don't have the full pilot, so it's just uh, basically going into like her investigation of the pilot and whether she can find it talking to different people at like renaissance alliance and related to the network just trying to hunt down identify the actors in the teaser itself and i feel like with ray Mona's videos she does really great journalism and really great investigation my one criticism is that she often repeats the same information a lot maybe because like she has these chapter breaks and so she kind of will repeat information from a previous chapter and the next thing but overall it's like a really fascinating piece of investigative uh journalism there's like really great interviews and really great stories of like figuring and finding out really cool details like including details about like other american anime adaptations that renaissance alliance was planning for like stuff like gundam and yeah that was that was really interesting and of course it like all ends and it culminates with like you know she doesn't find like any more footage of of Starstorm, but she does find and she reels at the end of the video, like, an intro for, like, an American animated adaptation Saint Seiya called Guardians of the Cosmos, which, like, you know, doesn't have any commentary on that uh, right now. I think that'll probably be for part two for her to investigate, but that's that's interesting. That's new stuff that caught I think a lot of people are surprised. We knew about Starstorm for a while, but Guardians of the Cosmos, American adaptation of Saint Seiya, the animated adaptation, that's new. That's something we, we haven't really seen before. So that's pretty cool to dig up into a nerd. Like, wow. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested in seeing like uh, her investigation to what Guardians of the Cosmos is, how that came about, what the ideas for that were. It's really exciting. But of course, uh, related to like Saint Seiya exploring its history, like why it caught on in certain parts of the globe but never caught on here. George Horvat over at the Land of Fusion, you know, one of the biggest, like Masama Kuramata fans on the internet, he basically recently wrote an article covering that very topic of like, yeah, let's just try and explore like all the different reasons why Saint Seiya never caught on in North America. 
And, you know, whether it be from, like, kind of the poor attempt of the original dub, like, the poor localization of that DAC dub, to the fact that it came out so late when it was already, like, nearly 20-year-old series as compared to, like, Dragon Ball, which came out pretty recently after it ended in Japan over in the United States. You know, I think George goes through a lot of factors, uh, a lot of evidence and anecdotes of, like, why the series wasn't able to catch on and just the difficulties of, like, getting people into Saint Seiya, of people getting into Saint Seiya because it's a big franchise and a lot of people just don't know where to start and, you know, there have been good opportunities here or there, but overall... Uh, in the state of things like it's kind of difficult to be able to recommend to people uh, and you have to be accessible to people it is, at least it has been for so long so and also in general some Kuramata's works have had very limited success even besides Saint Seiya in fact like the most successful thing has probably been anime Mitsubishi's release of Beat X which they didn't even market it as from like the creator of Saint Seiya which George points out is like hey you know they didn't even acknowledge the fact that it's related Saint-Sia, maybe that actually helped it in its marketing because like people didn't think that oh this is related to this other big franchise that they find intimidating to get into so yeah I think you know it, it's just an interesting mulling over of like why Saint-Sia never could catch on in North America and whether it can so I think that you know if you want some good Saint-Sia discussion Raymona's video and then George's article could do a good job looking back at the history and then looking back at our American cultural relationship to the property of the franchise. And then in terms of like reflections on 80 Shonen manga, my last shout out for this episode is going to be Anime Feminist recently published a piece by Madeline Blondo exploring a trans-feminine desire representation in Stop Ibarikun, which yeah, it was just a trailblazing manga of its time that just had a trans female lead who was obviously there's like some dated gender stuff in it, but there's also a lot of really progressive uh, empowering stuff in Hibari's portrayal and in the fact that this series otherwise like a rom era, but the main love interest is a trans woman and it's played pretty earnestly and it is based on like real feelings that uh, Iguchi had in in terms of like exploring his own frustrations with gender identity and exploring sexuality that he is talked about. So it comes from like kind of an authentic place of exploring like kind of real queer feelings, even though Iguchi himself has never really come out as being queer itself. It came from like ideas of like trying to think about and working on frustrations of wanting to live life as a girl and thinking about and representing the ideal girl in his story. And it's through the character of Hibari. And that's where this idea of trans feminine yearning and uh, desire comes from and is encapsulated in Hibari. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've always been very dear to Hibari-kun as a series. And I think it's, a, you know, as a series, I really wish uh, was available anime or manga-wise, localized and available because it is a really seminal and really ahead of its time work of trans and, and queer mainstream media for Japanese pop culture and just pop culture in general. And um, it'd be great to just have it locally and legally available, but I really enjoyed reading the spotlight and uh, thoughtful reflection on why the series like is still a delight even today and why it still has so much appeal and so much resonance today. I really, really appreciated this article. I recommend it.
And that does it for community shoutouts in terms of shouting out other people's stuff. But I did want to shout out some recent guest spots, uh, other podcasts that I was on or featured on. I was on an episode of Saturday Night Soggy recently where we all discussed the premiere of The Tale of the Outcast. We saw it at Anime NYC. So we had a special episode of SNS just talking about our thoughts on the premiere and how it compares to the manga. So yeah, if you want a sneak peek of what you can expect from The Tale of the Outcast anime adaptation, or just want to learn more about that series, definitely check out that episode. That was uh, a real fun one to record with the SNS crew. And I was also honored to be a part of the Taiku Podcast 100 episode discussing Redline. Corey invited a few folks, including myself, to just share our thoughts on Redline as a film, like what we find appealing about it, what we like about it. And yeah, I was very honored to be reached out to participate and help celebrate the Taiku Podcast 100 episode and to be given a chance to revisit Redline, which is a movie I don't think I've watched in um, 10 years before watching it for the podcast, but it was uh, great to revisit. I found a whole new appreciation and love for it uh, again after not watching it uh, in so long. And I had a lot of fun, like, uh, kind of writing and recording my thoughts and participating in the 100 episode celebration for the Tiger Podcast. So, yeah, I uh, just wanted to shout that out as well. Just two recent uh, guest pops I was on. And yeah, definitely check those out. So, yeah, that'll do it for now. There's still many other podcasts uh, in the works, and I'm sure there's many other, there's so many other things that are going on in terms of cool stuff being published to share and recommend. And I'm looking forward to continuing to share and recommend and spotlight all that in future episodes, whether they be this year or uh, coming in the new year. But you know, there's always a lot of gifts to share, even beyond Christmas time. Oh, for sure. And hey, you know what? Thank you guys so much for not only listening to this episode of the podcast, but uh, thank you for listening to us all throughout the year. We really appreciate you guys uh, listening to the podcast and hopefully enjoying it. And yeah, like we mentioned at the top of the show, this is most likely going to be our last podcast of the year. And so I think the plan is for next time, we will probably be releasing our January news episode after this. Uh, that's the plan so far anyway. And, you know, we've also mentioned a couple episodes ago recently that we're going to try to attempt a new sort of bi-weekly schedule in the coming year. So that way podcasts can hopefully come out more consistently. And yeah, hopefully that'll work out. And yeah, we hope you stick with us into the new year. And we hope you have a good holiday and a good new year. So yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your listenership and your support. And we hope that we could give you a lot of good entertainment and discussion this year, celebrating all the manga we love and enjoy. And we hope to continue to do that in the next year as well. And I um, hope you'll continue to stick with us for sure but i guess until until the new year comes up and we record yet again another podcast uh we're gonna let you guys know where you can find us and everything that we're doing here uh starting with my good friend lum where can the good people find you you can find me at Lumrayastra on Twitter for however long Twitter still is up. But you can find me at Lumrayastra any other place as well, like Letterboxd, Animation Revelation, Analyst. Wherever there's a Lumrayastra, you'll find me there by that name. You'll also find my writing, my reviews, my interviews over at MongoRise.com. We got a lot of stuff in the works. So we have a lot to look forward to publishing. So look forward to more stuff coming out on there. You can also find my other podcasts on there. Uh, Lum Squad, the Yours Yatsu for Puzzles. We discussed a wonderful Wacky World of Classic sci-fi rom-com series. 
And they're having a lot of fun covering the manga and the movies and, of course, the new anime. And we're going to really be excited to talk about the old anime when Discotech's Blu-rays of it come out next year. It's a really great and exciting time to be a Yurisu fan and a Rumiko Hakushi fan, you know, putting weird and weird together, making things even weirder, celebrating the weird. And, uh, yeah, so if you want Yurisu discussion, Rumiko discussion, definitely check out Lump Squad. You can find that pretty much every podcast platform you can think of apple podcast spotify stitcher anchor we also cross post episodes of the manga rights feed and post episodes early on the manga rights patreon and you can find us also on our social media by searching for low underscore squad on twitter and you can find our youtube channel by just uh, searching for it in the search bar and if you like the art i make the thumbnails that i draw for our podcast or the illustrations and animations i make in general you can find that stuff on my instagram at setartworks all right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Basically, if you go over there, you click on the podcast page, you can find links to literally everything I've done and doing, including, uh, you know, podcasts that I'm not a part of anymore, but still want to link anyway, or even uh, all the guest spots I've done on podcasts over the years. So if you're interested in literally anything else I'm doing right now, you can find an up-to-date listing of all my podcasting stuff, once again, all from my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. But as for everything we're doing here at Manga Mavericks, I mean, first off, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks at mangamavericks.com. That's where you can find every episode posted first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier, uh, you will have access to select episodes of the podcast when we have them uh, edited. Basically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited before we're supposed to put it up on our main feed, we'll put it up on our Patreon at the $2 tier uh, for our patrons to listen to before anyone else. Uh, but obviously, that depends on whatever we have done at any given moment and kind of where our editing schedule's at and what we have done. So really, if you want more reliable content, admittedly, you should sign up for our $5 tier where we post a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. Uh, right now, if you go to our Patreon uh, at the $5 tier, you can listen to our latest bonus podcast discussing our thoughts on One Piece Film Red. That's right, uh, Lum and I, as well as our good friends, the Saturday Night Shockey crew uh, with Marion, V-Lord, and Sakaki, all saw One Piece Film Red in theaters earlier in the month of November, and uh, we got together to talk about it. We really enjoyed having that discussion, and for all you guys who, uh, who have been wanting more One Piece talk on the podcast, that's where you can find it. Again, at the $5 tier, where we post a new bonus podcast at the end of every month at patreon.com slash In general, when you sign up for the Patreon, it really helps support the show and everything that we do here. Basically, everything we make through our Patreon goes back to uh, keeping the podcast up, keeping the website up. Uh, it's especially helpful for emergencies, that, uh, especially the ones that we've had uh, here and there over the past year. We really can't thank you guys enough for your support and everyone who is supporting us on Patreon. And if you want to be one of those people, again, patreon.com slash mavericks. That's where you can find us. Uh, but as for everything else, you could follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mavericks where we post different excerpts of the podcast, even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, do you have any thoughts on any of the simul pubs we talked about on this episode? Are you reading anything that you want us to cover on the show or that you want to tell us about? 
Email us anything about manga or the podcast or whatever. We love getting emails from you guys. And if you send us an email, we'll read it on the show. So once again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms at this point. Uh, but especially on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you can do this kind of thing. Uh, if you leave us a rating and a review, uh, it really helps the visibility of our show on all these platforms. And just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys, uh, whether it be positive or negative, because we want to use that feedback to make the show as best as possible. All right, but that is going to about do it for this episode. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Manga Mavericks. This has been episode 221, and we'll see you guys next time for episode 222. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.